So we're continuing again the, the holiness of God, uh, and society has often said that punishment should, should fit the crime, right? That, that seems like a logical concept uh, that exists. Uh, you know, Hammurabi, who was the king of Babylon, and even the Bible, utilized the idea, you know, the, the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? That the level of punishment that has been committed should be equal, right, to... To the, to the crime, right? So there, there should be a balance, right? So we, we don't take a little kid who has stolen a pack of gum and decide that we're going to cut his hands off, right? That would not be fitting at all, right? That would be an excessive form of punishment. But we do know that we live in a world uh, of sin, and we know that there are governments and individuals that have taken punishment well beyond the level of what is appropriate. And let me just give you a couple examples uh, from history and from around the world where punishment really went further beyond probably what God, I shouldn't say probably, what God had intended. Um, in Southeast Asia, uh, it's not an uncommon practice that if people engage in rebellion or tax evasion, that their punishment is to be trampled by elephant. So they actually would have the person down on the ground uh, and they would you know, bring an elephant over and they actually have trained elephants to actually stomp on different limbs first before committing the final blow on somebody. Uh, the Dutch Navy during the time of colonialism uh, practiced what was known as keel hauling. What they would do is they would tie you your hands and they would drape you over the side of a ship. And then they would take your feet and tie you that way and actually have the rope go around the other side of the ship. And so what they would do is they would literally pull you underneath the ship back and forth until either you drowned or your body was so scraped up from all of the barnacles that you would die from that type of pain. And in another one, the ancient Persians engaged in what was known as scaphism. They, they literally put you in a coffin, a floating coffin, and they would hang your head out. They would hang your arms and your, your, your legs out so you'd still be alive. They'd push you out into like a marsh or kind of a swampy type of lake. And before they pushed you out, though, they would actually pour honey all over the coffin and all over your body. And the idea was, is that it would attract all of the insects and bugs that literally would pretty much eat you to death at that process, um, if you didn't bake in, in terms of the sun. So, as I said, there, there's all kinds of, of punishments that we could have looked at. Those were just a couple. Um, but as we, we've talked about this sermon series, you know, I mentioned already that, that true justice can only be done by God, right? We, we can instill justice and, and, and we can dole out punishments for crime, but true morality, true justice is only done by a perfect and holy God. And, and as much as we do our best, again, there will be times where we don't get it right. And as we read the scripture today, we're going to come across the passage where we look at something and we go, this doesn't seem like God is, is administering proper justice here. It actually seems like God is, is doing what he's telling us not to do. He's going beyond the limits 
of what is acceptable form of punishment. And again, whenever we deal with these questions in our minds and we wrestle with them, we always have to dig further into the scriptures because God has provided answer in his word to helping us understand. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, just to give you a little bit of the backstory here, uh, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines. Uh, they were the enemies of Israel. They had taken it back to their land. And when they took the ark back to the Philistines, they started kind of getting these tumors all over the body. And they realized, we can't have the ark of the covenant here. We can't have God's ark. We, we have to get rid of this ark. We have to give it back to him. And so it, it was almost literally like what they did is they pretty much kind of put it on a cart and just kind of like pushed it down the hill and said, here you go, Israelites, you guys can have the ark back. We, we don't want it anymore. Okay. And so as it, as it comes back into the hands of the Israelites, it gets taken by Abinadab and it gets taken to a place called Kiriath Jehiram for 20 years. So it gets captured, the ark comes back, and, and this guy Abinadab takes it into his home, and that's where the ark is going to stay for the next 20 years. Now in this process, the Israelites have said to God, God, we want a king. We want a king just like all of the other nations around us. And God's like, I don't really think that's a good idea. Okay, it's not going to go well for you, but I'll give you a king. And so they have King Saul and King Saul was not a very good king. And so God removes him and in steps King David. And when David takes the throne, he goes back into Jerusalem and he, he, he expels the Jebusites and the Philistines. And when he gets back in there, he says, we need to bring the ark back. It, it can't sit in Abinadab's home anymore. It needs to be back in its rightful place. And so David goes to get the ark. And this is where we pick up here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all of his men set out from Balah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord with songs and harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out, took hold of the ark, because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. So, so, so they go to get the ark. They're bringing it back. And as they're bringing it back, the oxen stumbles. And Uzzah puts his hand out to protect the ark. And what does God do? God strikes him dead on the spot. 
Actually, it's a little bit more graphic than that. When we, we go to the, the, the original there, the Hebrew, it actually talks about the idea that Uzzah literally exploded on that. Right. So it's not like he like disintegrates, but it's literally his body just explodes all over the place. So at face value, again, we we go, wait a minute, I, I thought we served a good and loving God and a God of forgiveness. I mean, this seems rather excessive. It, it seems completely uncalled for that, that God is going to strike down a man dead for touching the ark. And again, before we jump to conclusions, this is where we need to understand our scriptures. What else has the word of God told us to help us understand what really is happening in this passage of scripture? So when when God gives Moses the instructions to to build the ark and the tabernacle, um, the place where God would meet his people, he also gives him instructions about how it is that he's going to create the Ark of the Covenant. And let me read the Ark of the Covenant, the inscriptions here, starting in verse 10. It says, Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out. Make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten to it four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of cassia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put, it in, the, then put in the ark of the testimony which I give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherubim on one end and the second cherubim on the other, and make the cherubim of one piece with the cover of the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward and overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other looking towards the cover and place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Testimony, I will meet with you and give you all of the commands for the Israelites. So he says, I want you to make this Ark and I want you to cover it in gold. I want you to cover every part of this thing in gold and I want you to make these angels over, over the, the Ark and over the covering that, that, that are there looking over the Ark and I want them to be made out of gold. I want everything to be covered in gold. And what I want you to do is I want you to put inside the ark, I want you to put the testimony that I'm going to give you. I want you to put the Ten Commandments in there. These laws that God gives to Moses on the mountain. And then we know that later on in in Scripture, he, he ends up putting some jar of manna in there, which was God's provision for them in the wandering of the desert. And then they also put in there Aaron's staff. And that was a sign to the Israelites as they continued to rebel to say, I'm going to make one of your staff buds. So that way you know who's in charge and who you need to follow. And that was Aaron. So all of that gets put inside the ark. And then it gets put with a cover over top of it that, again, everything is overlaid with gold. And then that ark was put in the tabernacle. That ark was placed behind the curtain, the the holy of holies, that only once a year the high priest could go in and be in front of that ark. And we're told in Numbers 7, 
It says, when Moses entered the tent of the meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim, above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant Law. In this way, the Lord spoke to him. Right, that's what he said. He said, I'm going I'm to sit on this ark. This is where I'm going to communicate to you. And so when, when the people would hear God, the voice of God would be coming from that place between the cherubim, between the angels above the ark. And Leviticus 16, it gives us a little bit of a description of that one time a year when the high priest could go in and be in front of the ark. And the high priest would, would have to purify himself. There was a whole process that he'd have to go through. And after he purified himself, he would take an animal and he'd slaughter an animal for himself. He'd slaughter another animal and he'd go in and he would take the blood of the slaughtered animal. And he would sprinkle it over the ark. And that blood would then be the appeasement for God's wrath. God, God would, would acknowledge and say, okay, your sins have been forgiven. But you're going to have to come back next year and do this again. So all of Israel, yes, I've acknowledged your sins and I've forgiven. But you're going to have to come back every year and do it again and again and again. Because this will satisfy my wrath. So if I understand this correctly, the Ark of the Covenant is a very treasured possession. Yes, that's exactly what it is. This is a very, very sacred piece to the Israelites. Well, if I go back to that passage, it, it doesn't seem like the Israelites misinterpreted the significance of the Ark. I mean, quite frankly, I think they really understood the holiness of God there. I mean, let's just, let's just look at a couple of those pieces again. The first thing that David wants to do is bring the ark back. It's not like David waits a year or five years and he goes, oh, that's right, the ark. We should probably get it back. No, no, that, that's top priority. And he goes down with 30,000 men. I mean, you're talking about a police escort here. You probably couldn't get a bigger one at the time. And they get a new cart. They, they didn't find some old broken down one where the wheels are starting. No, 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 no. Guys, we, we got to get top of the line here, right? We, we got to get the Cadillac uh, cart to come through. That's what we're going to put the ark on. And then what are they doing? They're having a parade. They're dancing before it and they're, they're playing music and they're singing to God. Adam, they totally understand the holiness of God here. So why is it that in verse 7, what Uzzah did was an irreverent act? Because again, it clearly seems to us that what they are doing is trying to honor the Lord in everything. I mean, quite frankly, it seems like we actually should be applauding Uzzah, shouldn't we? I mean, he's like, I can't let this thing fall on the ground. And he puts himself out there. I don't get it. That guy should be the hero right now. But yet, what does God do? God strikes him dead on the spot. So again, where, where else in Scripture do we need to understand what's happening here? Well, again, when God gives all of these instructions back in Exodus, 
He, he says to Aaron, he says, Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. And then in Numbers 3. Then the Lord said to Moses, bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron the priest to assist him. They are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of the meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons, and they are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to him. So, so God said, look, we're going to set Aaron and his line apart. They're going to be the priests. They're going to be the ones that go into the tabernacle and they're going to do all of the sacrifices. But we're also going to give you this other group of people from the tribe of Levi. And, and the Levites are going to be there. They're not going to get land. OK, but they're going to be there to help you. They're, they're going to be there to assist you in the process. They're going to be there to help take care of the artifacts. And the tabernacle itself. Because again, remember, God is all about setting things apart. So he says, these people, these specific Israelites have been set apart for a special purpose for me. And then Levi has three sons. Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. And each one of these sons was given a specific responsibility that involved the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where God would dwell. So the Gershons were responsible for the curtains of the tabernacle. The Marirites were responsible for all the frames and the cross beams and the posts. And the Kohathites were responsible for all of the items in the sanctuary, the lampstand, the table, the altar, the bowls, and also for the ark itself. And, and when it was time to move, right, God's presence would show up in a cloud or a fire, and, and he, would, he would rest there over the ark. And when God wanted to move, God would move that cloud, or God would move that pillar of fire, and then all the Israelites knew, hey, God's on the move, we got, we got to pack up here, it's time to go. And so then in Numbers 4, it says, This is the work of the Kohathites at the tent of the meeting, the care of the most holy things. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and put it over the Ark of the Covenant Law. They are to cover the curtain with adorable leather, spread a cloth of solid blue over that, and put the poles in place. And then in verse 15, after Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy furnishings and all of the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Korathites to come and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Korathites are to carry those things in the tent of the meeting. So Aaron and the priests are the only ones that can touch these items. And, and when it's time to go, they, they would cover them all up, they'd wrap them up, and then they would say to the, to the Levite son, they'd say to Kohath, they'd say, here you go, get your people, now you guys can go ahead and carry the ark. Now you can carry the furnishings. But again, it was only after the priest had wrapped it all up and covered it for them. And then we also see in Numbers, he talks a little bit more about this. 
So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. He gave two carts and four oxen to the Gershonites as their work required. And he gave four, ca- four carts and eight oxen to the Marirites as their work required. They were all under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. But Moses did not give any to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. Did you catch that? Two of the brothers got carts. They say, you need to transport stuff. Go ahead and carry them on the cart. But to the one brother, they said, listen, if you guys are going to carry stuff, remember those poles that I told you to build that I said, don't remove them, don't take them out? You're going to carry them on your shoulder. You guys don't get carts. You carry them up on your shoulders. Because again, God is all about setting himself apart. Only the priest could touch these sacred items after they've purified themselves. Nobody else was allowed to do it because God is all about making a distinction between him and the world. God is all about setting himself apart to say, I am holy and you are not. And if you are going to be in my presence, you need to come before me in a state of cleanliness. In a state where your sins have been dealt with. So this is the reminder to us of the great chasm that exists between God and us. And again, what did Numbers 4.15 tell us? That if we violate that chasm, if we touch the holy ark of God, what is to happen to us? We are to die. Romans 6.23 tells us for the wages of sin is death, right? A violation of God's law is a sin. Sin is dealt with of the punishment of death. Adam, that is really drastic. You are telling me that the God that you serve is going to kill a person because he touched an item? That's really hard to swallow for people. But see, I I think that's when we look at the passage again now a second time, now that we understand all of that, this is what makes it so much worse. Remember what we said. It was top priority for King David. King David went down with 30,000 men. They got themselves a new ark. They danced in front of it. They understood the holiness of God, but yet refused to obey that holiness. You know, at no point did anybody say, including King David himself, including the 30,000 men, including the priests, the Levites, not one of them, not even Uzzah himself, bothered to stop and say, guys, what are we doing? Remember what God told us? He said we should be carrying this on our shoulders. It's not supposed to be on a cart. Not one person stopped to consider the obedience to God. So when Uzzah was killed, every one of those people there, including Uzzah himself, was responsible for his death. This wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to stopping the ark. No, see, the error was 
the, the hastiness, the irreverence was that nobody bothered to care about how to transport the ark. The error and the problem was that nobody cared about the consequences of what would happen if they touched the ark. The error was that nobody cared about the fact that what they were moving from one place to another was the holy presence of God. You know, they say familiarity breeds contempt, right? That, that when we're in the presence of something for a long time, we become familiar with it. And, and again, this, this ark sat in Uzzah's home for 20 years. And I think he probably got pretty comfortable being in the presence of the ark. Now... All we know from Scripture in 1 Samuel 6 was that Eleazar was, was consecrated to guard it. That's all we know about how the ark was treated in those 20 years. So I, I'm going to exaggerate a point. I have no idea if this was the reality of what went on. This is not scriptural, but I, I'm exaggerating a point here. I wondered if over time... The sons kept coming into the presence of God and got to a point when they would talk with their friends. They're like, yeah, the ark's in my house, like no big deal. Whatever, it's been there. I've seen it. I, I wonder if they've got to the point where they would come into the presence of the ark and they'd sit down to watch TV and they'd put their drinks and their food on it and put their feet up on the ark of God. Again, this is an exaggeration, but I want us to understand something here when we talk about the holiness of God and we talk about sin. See, when we know the gospel, the gospel is a beautiful thing, don't get me wrong. Because the gospel allows us to understand the freedom that we have from our sins. It allows us to understand the joy and it allows us to understand the blessing of what God has given to us. That we are sinners who, who are deserving of God's wrath and death, but instead he steps in and he says, I will bear the consequences of your sin. I will take that wrath upon myself on the cross and I will die for you and you will be forgiven. And there's a joy in forgiveness. But how often do we take that forgiveness lightly? How often do we go about our day where we realize that we have sinned and we're like, oh my gosh, I sinned. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Whew, okay, good. I'm glad I got that taken care of. Right? We're cool, right, God? Okay, good. And then we go about our lives as if nothing happened. How often do we, do we lament and weep over our sins? It's probably more natural for us to feel good about ourselves that we came before a holy God, asked for forgiveness, because that's the right thing to do. And we pat ourselves on the back and go, thank goodness I can move on with my day. I think that's what happens when we take God lightly and we don't understand his holiness and we take sin lightly in our lives. We just treat it as if some sort of byproduct. 
We just treat it as if it's just some normalcy of our lives and we just sweep it under the carpet as if it never happened because we go, well, God died on the cross and shed his blood. We're good. Do we ever really stop to consider the consequences of sin? Sin destroys and it kills and it ruins our lives and it ruins the lives of others around us. It separates us eternally from a holy God who didn't want that separation. But as I mentioned earlier, because I don't want us to, to get stuck on this point and say we're all bad people. That God's justice is tempered by his grace, right? We, we, we talked about how, again, God removing them from the garden was actually an act of grace that they would not eat from the tree of life in a state of sin. How in that garden, God covered over their shame by, by getting an animal skin. He shed the blood of that animal and said, I will cover your shame and your nakedness. And it's the same thing that God did at the ark. Again, the high priest would go in, stand in the presence of God. And on that day of atonement, he would sprinkle blood over that ark. An ark that contained the law. A law that you and I are expected to follow but can't uphold. And when we can't uphold that law, he said there is to be death for you. So when you lie... When you cheat, when you steal, when you lust, when you get angry, when you disrespect your spouse or your children, when you disrespect your parents, all of that is deserving of death. But God said there's grace in his justice. You know, the, the mercy seat, as it was called, that covering, that mercy seat, or that atonement, which literally means to cover over. When the high priest would go in, and again, he, what he was doing was he was asking for God's mercy. He said, God, this law that sits inside this ark that we can't uphold, we violated it again, and we're sorry. And we understand that in order to make this right, there has to be death. And so, so we have purified ourselves and we have sacrificed this animal. And we are showing you the blood of the cost of what that sin meant. And we are asking you, God, to forgive us. And when you tell us to come back next year, oh, trust me, God, we will be back. Quite frankly, we'll be making sacrifices all year long because our sins are so heinous. And again, all of this was a forerunner to the coming of Christ. Hebrews 10 tells us, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away those sins. See, they, they were a temporary peace. They were an ongoing peace because the life of an animal does not equate to the life of a human being. I can't commit a sin and then go out and buy a goldfish and sacrifice a goldfish and say, God, that's equal. Right? That, those are apples and oranges. So when, when Christ gave up his life on the cross, when, when a sinless, perfect man came down and said, I will bear your wrath, then God said, I am satisfied with what Christ has done. Quite frankly, 
I'm even more satisfied because, because it took the life of a sinless man to cover over a sinful human being. Do you understand that? We, we look at what Christ has done and we go, it's a human for a human. No, it was a sinless man for a sinful man. And we are the ones who reap the benefits of that. So he continues in Hebrews 10. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. When Christ gave up his life, no more sacrifice was required for you and I. He bore the weight of all of humanity when he shed his blood there. That veil was torn that separated us from the Holy of Holies. And God now said, you can stand in my presence. But I don't want us to take lightly again. I desire for us to realize what it means when we violate the laws of God and our sinfulness. Because really, a violation of God is violating the holy, all-perfect, majestic creator of this world who holds all power and authority in his hands that at any moment can choose to strike us dead and we better be thankful that every time we sin, he holds that back from us. But that's the beauty of God. Because we combine that understanding of his holiness and we also understand the holiness that a holy God also forgives our sins. So let us not forget. Let us not take lightly the amazing gift that we have, what Christ has done for us. The, the reward that we have. That the sins that you and I engage with on a daily basis, yes, praise be to God that they are forgiven, but let us also understand that there should be a brokenness in our hearts over those sins because he has freed us from those sins. He has redeemed us from those sins for now and all of eternity. Let's pray. Lord, um, I hope right now, I hope our hearts, I hope our minds are just burning through the sins that we have committed. Lord, I, I pray right now that we are wrestling in our own flesh to say, God, forgive. You forgive, you forgive, but Lord, you've called us to be transformed. Lord, we, we aren't to live in a state of sinfulness, but we're to live in a state of holiness. Lord, I, I ask that we as a body would be willing to confess these to you. That we'd be willing to make those heart changes, the practical applications of our lives, that again, we just don't take sin and sweep it under the carpet and, and feel good. But instead, that we recognize 
the egregiousness of what sin does and it destroys the relationship between you and I and everyone else. But in that same breath, Lord, I thank you and I praise you, God, that you are willing to forgive that. You are willing to embrace us. And when we say, God, you, you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand how bad I am. God understands and he still wants to throw his arms around us. And I thank you for that. Let us be again a church, a body of believers. Let us be a family that is wholly committed to your holiness. And seeing sin for what it is before you. Amen.